the Oscar. Woo! Right on, dude. <laughs> for best actor for his portrayal as composer Antonio Solieri, Mozart's rival in Amadeus. Here to introduce us to next year's best actress from the accounting firm of F. Murray and Abraham, the chairman of the board, F. Murray Abraham. As a group, the nominees for Best Actress tonight have been nominated 24 times and have won four Oscars. Now it's time to make that five Oscars. The nominees for performance by an actress in a leading role for her portrayal of a mother superior trying desperately to maintain decorum in a troubled situation. What do you think? Is she totally bananas or merely slightly off-center? Or maybe she's perfectly sane and just a very good liar. Anne Bancroft in Agnes of God. As Celie, who survived her childhood and a bad marriage and finally finds freedom and herself. Their children sent by God are your children. Whoopi Goldberg in the color purple. As the strong-willed, legendary country singer Patsy Cline. Jessica Lang in Sweet Dreams. As an elderly woman determined to get back to her childhood home. I have made myself one promise. To see my home again before I die. Geraldine Page in a trip to Bonneville. As a passionate woman who braves a new world to create a new life for herself. Next time you change your mind, you do it with your money. Meryl Streep in Out of Africa. <laughs> I consider this woman the greatest actress in the English language. Welcome back to Bro and Lee take on the Academy, the best and most esteemed podcast for Academy Award do-overs. I'm Lee. I'm Spro. And our destiny is to rewrite Oscar history one gold man at a time. Today, we continue our quickie series, The Streep Effect, or as we've begun to affectionately refer to it as, Gone Streepin'. When last we left off, Streep had been stripped of her 1982 nomination for the French Lieutenant's Woman, and we gave that honor to Faye Dunaway for her harrowing performance as Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest. 
Spro, do you still feel we made the right choice? I rewatched The French Lieutenant's Woman just to make sure I still felt the same. And I do. I really can't believe you rewatched The French Lieutenant's Woman. Yeah, that movie. I was angry at this podcast for making me watch it <laughs> once. This season, we're evolving. And I like the fact that we have this little spreadsheet. And sometimes we go down and you go, I'll watch this one that nobody's ever heard of. And I'll be like, okay, then I'll watch this one that nobody's ever heard of. And there are movies that we watch that I'm like, you know what? I'm glad I watched that. That one was good. That snuck up on me. And then there's movies like The French Lieutenant's Woman that, man, I mean, it feels like like <laughs> anthropology homework. I feel like I'm back in college in a course I mistakenly took. And I'm just suffering through it. Prep for this entire episode was the most suffering that I've yet endured on this show. I mean, the 80s were an awful era for film. Some of my favorite films come from the 80s. Maybe the ones that like are recognized by these award shows are awful, but not the Goonies, the John Hughes movies. Those are great films. Do you agree? Disagree? Uh, of course I agree. I mean, yeah, there were bangers. Spielberg. Got, I was going to say Raiders, all three Indiana Jones movies. Well, the first three Indiana Jones movies were all 80s <laughs> films. There are good movies, but by and large, the 80s sucked ass. Well, maybe the Academy Awards went off the rails in the anyway. In the uh, I don't, yeah. The popular films didn't make it to the Academy Awards in the 80s. And the popular films are what people, you know, remember. And now they're what Netflix is emulating with shows like Stranger Things and Dark. The 80s were a good nostalgia era. Oh, hi. I'm two-time Saturn Award nominee Kevin Bacon. And I would like to talk to you about 80s awareness. Awareness of 80s culture and technology has been in a significant decline, especially amongst a certain demographic. I'm talking to you, millennials. All you guys born after 1985 have no idea how hard life was. If I was too shy to ask a girl out, there was no okay twinder. I went to the white pages, Google it, and called her house. And then you had to make small talk with her mom for like 20 minutes before Alicia even came to the phone. And let me tell you, when she turns down your invitation to Sparrows, you can't just swipe away the hurt. You want to know my favorite app? Rubik's Cube. I saw you tweet an article about Russia. You think Russia's a threat now? Let me tell you about a little thing called the Cold War. They had nukes pointed at us for 20 years. You couldn't even skateboard to a blockbuster without getting nuked. My friend Tommy went out to rent a copy of Gremlins and never came back. You know why? Nuked. At least that's what my- Could we please have an Oscar fun fact? For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick-me-up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor of 1993. We here at Spro and Lee Take on the Academy take our coffee seriously. We are passionate, eccentric, and a little odd. And for us, there's Odd Dog. Odd Dog Coffee is a specialty roaster based out of Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise a high-quality roast profile to create a solid bean. And when they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, 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 no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon stick. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every day. Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from four original roasts, cardamom and clove, just the beans, cinnamon and cayenne cacao, or my personal favorite, reishi shroom and L-theanine. Place your order now and get free shipping on orders over $40. 
like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its dedication, comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies you watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but Odd Dog. Okay. So who's number two? If we're going after Meryl because she's number one in nominations with 21, 20, now in the new Saltota reality, how much would we have to take away to make her second place? Well, ladies and gents and rents and everybody in between and off the charts, as vindictive, eviscerating assholes as we are, I do not think Lee or I have it in us to actually rip away nine nominations from Miss Streep, which we would have to do to put her in a three-way tie for first with Miss Hepburn, whom we talked about in our first Streeping episode, and Jack Nicholson. Mr. Jack Nicholson has 12 nominations, tying him in second place with Miss Catherine Hepburn. I'm digging this fun fact because we get to talk about Jack, a presence I deeply miss sitting front row when the envelopes are red. In fact, when Will Smith went batshit at last year's ceremony, one of my first thoughts was, you bastard, you even were sitting middle center in Jack Nicholson's seat when you lost your damn mind. Jack Nicholson has eight Best Actor nominations and four Best Supporting Actor nominations. He has won three times, same as Meryl Streep, for the films One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Terms of Endearment, and As Good As It Gets. Winning three times puts you in some pretty nice company. Daniel Day-Lewis, Francis McDormand, Ingrid Bergman, and Walter Brennan all have three apiece. Nicholson was a staple at the awards. There's rumors about why he is out of the limelight now, but his family fiercely denies these rumors, saying that the actor is 100%. He's just retired. So, he spends his days watching TV reruns now, classic movies, and sports. And snacking. Regardless, Mr. Nicholson, God forbid when that time comes, we'll be going out on top. The next actor with a chance of catching him is Denzel Washington with nine nominations. The last Streep episode, I did like a rush more of the actresses, and I think the actor Denzel would be up there and then uh, Jack Nicholson Paul Newman I know for you who would be your fourth actually I think most people would probably knock Paul Newman off to put either De Niro or Pacino up there probably De Niro you think yeah like versatile though well I love Paul Newman but he wasn't very versatile either yeah I guess so so let's recap real quick Last time, we finished by taking away Meryl Streep's Best Actress nomination for The French Lieutenant's Wife, which brings us to her next nomination, which was for Sophie's Choice. Streep was nominated and won Best Actress in a Leading Role Oscar, 1983. You know, last season, we talked a lot about the films of 1982 when we had my brother on. And even though it was off topic, we spent a good amount of time talking about how deserving Streep was of this award. So suffice to say, we're not going to mess with this one. No. Okay. <laughs> not at all. We, we agree she's phenomenal in this movie. One of the greatest performances of all time. In fact, with Sophie's Choice, we have already covered two of my three favorite Streep performances. Ooh. As you look at all we have to still go over, how many haven't you seen yet, do you think? Quite a few. And I will be sure to let you know if my top three changes. I don't know what your third one is, but if it's not a River's Wild, like... (laughs) No. (laughs) I want to revisit it, though, because I could use some more Kevin Bacon in my viewing. No, it's one that we'll actually... It was one that she was nominated for. It's one that we'll end up talking about. I can't believe you can't guess it. The Iron Lady. Jesus Christ. The Post. Uh, All right. (laughs) Which brings us to Silkwood, for which Streep was nominated as Best Actress in a Leading Role, 1984. On November 13, 1974, Karen Silkwood, an employee at an Oklahoma nuclear facility, was on her way to meet with a reporter from the New York Times. She never got there. Name? Karen Silkwood. Name? 
Darren Silkwood. Drew Stevens. Dolly Pelliker. Sweet the sound that saved Sweethearts like your two people. I'm in love with one of them. effects from all this material. We've all seen the poor guy suffering the effects of sunburn. Well, radiation's like that. <laughs> there was a contamination in our section. They're saying that you did it. I just hate people talking about me that way. Karen, the company's got to blame somebody, otherwise it's their fault. Sounds like they're trying to get rid of you. <laughs> I wish I could take care of you. But... I'm doing something good. I know what you're doing. You're the wrong person to be doing. I was just thinking if you'd ever quit, come away with me. I can't quit now. What are you doing in there? I'm so scared now. They're trying to kill me. So this is the beginning of a new chapter in Streep's career. Henceforth, the characters that she plays are a lot more durable than the delicate or emotionally compromised females that she portrays in Kramer vs. Kramer, Deer Hunter, and even French Lieutenant's Woman. Silkwood is the true story of Karen Silkwood, quote, an American chemical technician and labor union activist. This woman made plutonium pellets for the Kerr-McGee Cimarron Fuel Fabrication Site in Oklahoma. As a union member, she rallied against her employer for numerous violations of health regulations, including exposure of workers to contamination, faulty respiratory equipment, and improper storage of samples. But the thunderclap was when her union, which was referred to as the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, said, quote, the Kerr-McGee plant had manufactured faulty fuel rods, falsified product inspection records, and risked employee safety. And then her union threatened litigation. So to put that down to a sentence or two, she worked at a a nuclear processing plant where there was some fuckery going on and she called people on their fuckery. So later on in the same year, Karen Silkwood was found to have been exposed on more than one occasion to dangerously high levels of radiation, the source of which could not ever be confirmed. Kermagee Simmerin claimed Silkwood had contaminated herself in order to hold the company publicly responsible. However, there are many who believe the more sinister conspiratorial explanation that her activism threatened interests far above her pay grade which ultimately resulted in her being assassinated. Had you ever heard of Karen Silkwood before you read the script or watched the movie? Oh, yeah. Like, I feel like anytime now that uranium or nuclear disasters are talked about, Silkwood's name is brought up at least once. In fact, uh, there's like a new uh, Netflix documentary about Three Mile Island, and I could guarantee her name is in there somewhere. And for the record, I absolutely don't believe she contaminated herself to prove a point. Of course. Because what is it? It's Arkham's Razor? Occam's Occam's Razor. Razor. Arkham Asylum and Occam's Razor. (laughs) 
<laughs> what is it? The simplest answer is usually the right one. Yeah. But, you know, back to Meryl. Like, I liked Meryl on this. I read the script before I ventured to watch the movie. I am really surprised that this is a Nora Ephron script. She did, like, When Harry Met Sally and You've Got Mail and uh, Hanging Up. She does all these meet-cute romantic comedies. And then there's this movie, which is, like, completely different. But in the same instance, it's a great script. It's a great movie. It's well-directed. I liked Meryl in this. I liked everybody in this. I liked this movie. I could have gone either way though. I watched the film and I was like, Meryl's good in it. I want to see what Lee thinks. And if you were like, let's challenge it, I'll be like, I can maybe make a case, but I'm glad that we don't. I'm not for taking this one away. Mm-hmm. As we go through all Streep's nominated performances, I need her to grab me when she's on screen. We will talk about one actress this episode where I thought she was upstaged by one of her co-stars. And with Meryl Streep and Silkwood, I had to really wonder, did she steal the screen from me? But you can't deny that she made you feel the pain of those radiation showers. But when it comes to like, if you're a nominated actress, there has to be one scene from that movie that I can like point to and say, that's your nomination right there. That landed. That was amazing. That needs to be at least recognized for being an award-worthy performance. Bring it back to Silkwood. I really like watching Meryl Streep play Blue Collar. She really pulled it off. And it helps that the movie is really good. Not only do you have three fetching leads in their prime, but you have Mike Nichols directing a Nora Ephron script. On top of that, you have Ron Silver, you have Craig T. Nelson, you have a very young David Strathairn, you have Joseph Summer and the late Fred Ward, and they're all good. But it's all about watching Street, Russell, and Cher, who are particularly wonderful together. You're never going to see these three Cherists. Of course not. Of course not. But what do you think about what makes a nomination and what makes uh, an award-worthy performance? I'm very sensitive to phony, which I know is completely subjective. What one person feels as a bullshit, another person might fall for hook, line, and sinker. But the minute that something feels artificial to me, whether it's a snatch of dialogue, a look, or even a head tilt, I become incredulous. And Streep's friendship with Cher in this movie produces some real earnest and heartfelt moments. But if we were going to pinpoint one scene, it's the third act of the film where she realizes she's been contaminated and she feels as though she's being targeted. The paranoia is real. The fear is real. Yet she does not falter in her quest to expose this company. Definitely deserve the nomination. Absolutely agree. Next on the list is Out of Africa, for which Streep was nominated as Best Actress in a Leading Role in 1986. I want to hear you say my name. You are Karen, Sabu. The mail has come today, and a friend writes this to me. The Maasai have reported to the district commissioner at Ngong that many times at sunrise and sunset they have seen lions on Finchhatton's grave. A lion and a lioness have gone there and stood or lain on the grave for a long time. 
This one was nominated for 11 Academy Awards at 1-7, including Best Picture and Best Director for Sidney Pollack. It's a film that's quite frankly best experienced on mute. No offense to composer John Barry's Oscar-winning score, but it's really beautiful to look at. The scenery, the costumes, the sets, and Pollock really captured the desolation and beauty of Kenya alongside his director of photography, David Watkin, who won the Oscar for Best Cinematography. But it's just, it's boring. It feels off. And really, so I watched all the best pictures one year in a year, and this movie just kind of went in one ear and out the other. Revisiting it for this episode, I was like, oh yeah, this one. And so I started reading the reviews of people that are from this area in Kenya. And they're like, this movie kind of triggers me because the places that they were at and filming at still exist. And they're an example of the rich and the the colonizers visiting Africa. And I was like, ooh, that's going to be hard to get out of my mind. And then I couldn't stop thinking about that. Along the way, Robert Redford with huge African elephant tusks, you know, walking out. I'm like, oh, that's an asshole move right there. You know, <laughs> like, so like, I just became extra judgy when it came to this film. And then something about Meryl Streep's performance, I did not like. If you want, we could just stop right here with Out of Africa and challenge this nomination. <laughs> no, let's let's shit on it, man. All, All right. right. So this film, I don't know, man, it rubs me the wrong way. It's got Africa right there in the title, but the story is centered around white people, colonists, poachers, as you brought up, opportunists, and director Sidney Pollack, to his credit, cast, quote, descendants of several people of the Kikuyu tribe. However, they exist solely to support Karen's story. They're barely characters. And I'm sure to somebody listening, I sound like an impudent little wokester, and that's fine. But consider this. In the same year that Out of Africa came out, Alice Walker's The Color Purple came out. It was nominated also for 11 Academy Awards. A lot of the same Oscars that Africa was up for, and it won nothing. But let's get back to streeping. I can see why Miss Merrill was drawn to the role. Her character, Karen Blixen, fancies adventure and romance. She's headstrong, empowered, but she must endure the gender inequality of her era. And Meryl makes this character winsome, despite also being bratty and titled and stubborn. Honestly, Streep's good in this movie. But every time the leading man, Robert Redford, shows up, her performance turns to shit. And that is because of how blasé his performance is in comparison to hers. He just acts nonchalant, super fucking cool, soft-spoken, full of wisdom, and bereft of the soul that Streep is clearly trying to bring to this role and to this movie. Did you know that in all of literature, there's no poem celebrating the foot, there's lips, there's eyes, hands, face, hair, breasts, legs, arms, even the knees, but not one verse for the poor foot. Why do you think that is? Uh, priorities, I suppose. Did you think you would make one? Problem is, there's nothing to rhyme it with. Put. It's not a noun. Doesn't matter. Along he came and he did put. Upon my farm, his clumsy foot. (laughs) 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 We should have a story now. When I tell a story to my nieces at home, one of them always provides the first sentence. Anything? Absolutely anything. There was a wandering Chinese named Cheng Huan living in Limehouse and a girl 
named Shirley. Who spoke perfect Chinese, which she learned from her missionary parents. Cheng Wan lived alone in a room on Formosa Street, above the blue lantern. He sat at his window, and in his poor, listening heart, strange echoes of his home come through. I absolutely agree. Like, I didn't pinpoint that because when Robert Redford was on the screen, I was like, man, does he do anything else than this character? It's the same character that he played in Indecent Proposal, The Sting. I mean, he was a little bit more action oriented in Three Days of the Condor, but this is just Robert Redford being Robert Redford. And then he's supposed to be an Englishman. Redford showed up with an English accent and it was Pollock that was like, no, 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 no. We're just going to. Yeah, it's too distracting. It's too (laughs) distracting. In my mind, I was like, I would have loved to see the great Gatsby with an English accent. What bumped me about Meryl Streep's performance in Out of Africa was her Danish accent. For some reason, it just felt like all the words were working their way around her tongue. She's obviously very talented. I can't speak enough for how mesmerizing she was when it came to Sophie's choice and embodying a different language that she did in that film. And so for this one, I was like, well, you didn't do it as well this time around. I kept getting bumped on her accent. I think then this is where we stake our claim. There's got to be somebody out there more deserving of Streep's nomination for Out of Africa. Oh, absolutely. All this was was Streep had an accent and Robert Redford is making speeches while squinting his eyes and having his hands in his pockets. So then this is the one that we're going to focus on. Pull the car over. We're in 1985. Right. Okay. My mind went first to Mia Farrow in The Purple Rose of Cairo. Farrow as the pathetic Cecilia has always stuck with me. But you disagree, right? It's not that I disagree. I think she gets outshined by a brilliant Jeff Daniels. When we're together, we're great company. I love my baby. My baby loves me. That was wonderful. Oh, Oh, that was, you know. Movie, you, you should do a musical, really. You, you know, you know, you know. I did a one bit. Yeah, one I, once. I, I saw Dancing Doughboy. Sure. Dancing Doughboy. Yeah. I still remember. Oh, that was great. I remember you. You turned to Ina Beasley and you said, "I won't be going south with you this winter." That's exactly yeah. right. Right. I won't. I won't. I won't be going south with you this winter. We have a little uh, score to settle on the other side of the Atlantic. Does this mean I won't be seeing you ever again? Oh, ever is a long time. When you leave, don't look back. You remember that you remember it perfectly. And then and then I took her in my arms and and I kissed her, knowing it was for the last time. God, you're beautiful, Cecilia. Was it fun kissing Anna Beasley? Oh, I was just you know, it was a movie kiss. You know, we professionals we can put that, that stuff on just like that. It looked like you loved her. Was he nominated? I don't think he I mean, was. Th- which is bullshit. At a time when you, like, they're probably just holding up a tennis ball. Like, so explain what the Purple Rose of Cairo is. So the Purple Rose of Cairo is about Mia Farrow during Depression era New York City. She is married to Danny Aiello, who is a drunken, abusive, disloyal asshole. And her escape is cinema in the golden era of Hollywood. 
at one point she goes to see a movie called the purple rose of cairo and falls in love with it and she goes and sees it and sees it and sees it and sees it and then one time during a scene that we the audience have seen multiple times the character played by jeff daniels in the movie breaks the fourth wall looks right out into the audience of the movie theater and says to mia farrow boy you must really love this picture i've seen you here so many times and then he steps out of the movie kind of a big giveaway that i just but you could definitely still enjoy it um, oh yeah and it's such a fucking shame that it was made by woody allen man <laughs> and i didn't know that i must have missed the credits or whatever the movie is phenomenally imaginative but explains everything so it can kind of exist in the real world well there's two jeff daniels and they share the screen together sometimes and this is back before digital so he's acting with himself and he's doing a better job than say like michael keaton does in multiplicity he is Telling you the fact that there are two Jeff Daniels sharing a screen together. His performance was amazing. So I felt like Mia Farrow kind of went into the background. I've seen Mia Farrow be amazing in Rosemary's Baby. And in this one, she kind of just plays unsure of how to proceed and, and what to do. And so that would be my only disagreement for Mia Farrow taking the Meryl Streep nomination away. I agree with you. Daniels is the best thing about the movie. And I'm so happy that you liked the movie. It is one of the few recommendable films on our docket for today because most of what I watched really wasn't worth a damn. None of them are worth discussing. The only performance that came close was Sally Field and Murphy's Romance. And she's good, but she's not Oscar worthy. And that movie is some trite ass shit from Martin Ritt. What did you watch? Did you watch anything worth talking about? <laughs> the one from out of left field is Letter to Bresnahov. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. The funny thing about 1980s movies, and I would say any movie set before the 90s and after colorization, is that there is such a stark difference between high budget and low budget. High budget looks like The Godfather and Apocalypse Now, and low budget looks like In the Heat of the Night or French Connection. And really low budget looks like most of the stuff we watched before this episode. And that was Letter to Bresnahov. It's a tough watch, but mainly because it was set in Liverpool with thick accents and I was watching bootleg YouTube with the closed captioning being one of the guesstimation ones. So it wasn't all accurate. And the funny thing is, is when they swore, that is one thing that the closed captioning picked up on and then just put brackets with underscores for all the cuss words. It was a cute film about a couple of girls who meet a couple of sailors where one uses the instance for sex and the other for love. And then halfway through the film, the night is over and Alexandra Pig, who is nominated for a Best Actress BAFTA for her role, writes a letter to the president of the Soviet Union in order to find the sailor, which was cute. And then it becomes like this political thing of like, well, are you going to renounce your citizenship and da 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 da. I, I gave it a shot to see if Alexandra was someone to consider. And I would say she was good, probably like how you were saying with Sally Field. Would you recommend that movie to anybody? Uh, no. There is a 1985 movie I think half of our audience heard of was Mask. Do you remember Mask? Of course I remember Mask. It's manipulative bullshit. What? It's shallow hell. It's powder. It's base as fuck. Tell it's me shallow hell and powder and everything. Those are not based on a true story. Might be more manipulative. This is Elephant Man for the 80s. <laughs> Elephant Man came out in the 80s. <laughs> you know what this is? This is a second reason to talk about Cher. Yeah. Rocky Dennis has ambitions. For academic achievement in mathematics, Rocky Dennis. You may as well stay here, Rocky. For achievement in history, Rocky Dennis. And for achievement in science, Rocky Dennis. He has hopes. Ben and I are saving up our money to ride motorcycles through Europe. 
those are all the places I'm gonna go. He has dreams, just like everyone else. Boy, do I love you. I wish we could run away and be together all the time. We can't run away, Diana. The only thing is, Rocky Dennis isn't like everyone else. I don't look like Adonis. I'm kind of strange looking. I've got this problem that makes my face look real unreal. My mom says I look like a lion, though. She figures that I was a lion in one of my past lives and some of it got left over. Universal Pictures presents a Martin Starker production. Peter Bogdanovich's Mask, starring Cher, Sam Elliott, and Eric Stoltz. Based on the true story of 16-year-old Rocky Dennis, Mask. Sometimes the most unlikely people become heroes. So, holy crap, I don't know why some things in this movie resonated with me so much, but most specifically the sounds the thumbtacks make when she's putting them into the map at the very end. I don't fall too much for the ASMR stuff, but I forgot a lot about this movie other than how much of a crush I also got on Laura Dern riding her horse, how much I understood Rocky's social anxiety when meeting people he knew were going to judge him, and then, of course, Cher putting the thumbtacks in the map at the end. Like, I can hear the sound of the metal going into the corkboard. Our older audience and sheriffiles would hate us for not bringing her up in this movie. But after watching this film again as an adult, this is not her film. Eric Stoltz, God love him, deserves a lot of praise for what he did in this film. And you probably disagree, but I think he was really good in it. Definitely could have tell. I know there's a lot of prosthetics and makeup and da 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 da. But just his boyish charm and whatnot felt different than what I remember Eric Stoltz being in. And damn, if Sam Elliott isn't smoldering every time he's on screen. You know what? Now that I'm thinking about Sam Elliott in this movie, they should probably casted him in Out of Africa if they are going to ignore the fact that the character should have been British. Cher gets lost amongst these guys. Whether it's because her role puts her in some kind of matriarchal background or whatnot, she shows up, she delivers some good mom lines, some bad mom lines, does some Cher things, but I think this is a case of, yeah, she's the actress with the most lines, but she's really only there to support Eric Stoltz's performance. To me, this is not a best actress role. So, sorry for everybody out there that loves Cher. She was really good in Silkwood. She was really good in Mask, but I don't think either of these gets her a best actress nomination. You made me feel bad for saying that it's manipulative. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know, man. When's the last time you watched it? Just watched it for this episode. Oh, did you? I know yeah. you like you're like you watch it because I don't want to watch it again. And I was like, okay, I'll watch it. No, I rewatched it. I mean, it, it's just it's like, what's the takeaway? Don't be mean to ugly people. Like, what's the takeaway? Sure, don't bully. Okay. Or if you are deformed and somewhat, try to make the best of your life, regardless. You know, like I don't know. Okay, that feels like a movie for super insecure people. Wow, I feel called out. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, okay. So let's move on to Maxi. I'm going to let you take the lead on this movie. I just wanted to quickly share what Roger Ebert said about it, in case you didn't see it. If Maxi had any brains, she would appear in Jan's body, take one look at the script, and decide she was better off dead. Pretty harsh. Yeah, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> Defend the script? We're not here to talk about the script. I just thought it'd be funny to needle you a little bit because you let me know that you like this movie. You got to admit, that's pretty funny. I don't know, because I watched The Purple Rose of Cairo and then I watched this one and I was like, I really like these storylines. Obviously, like I should have on Hollywood for loving Hollywood. And I've been like, you know, when it comes to like them making stories about themselves, I'm like, oh, how hard it is to make it in the city and everything. I don't like those. But Purple Rose of Cairo was the Woody Allen version 
version of Last Action Hero, which I totally appreciated. And then Maxi just felt like the old ghost story of the woman, Peg Entwistle, who wasn't being successful fast enough. And so she climbed up the H of the Hollywood sign and jumped off and committed suicide. So now they're thinking like the Hollywood sign is haunted by her ghost. And that's what Maxi was bringing me back. Jan Cheney is a nice person. She has a nice husband and a nice dog and some nice neighbors. Shake it around. Burn it. Put on a big smile. Stick them up. Everything about Jan is nice until one night. <laughs> Jan isn't just Jan anymore. <laughs> She's something else. Would you be so kind as to explain your behavior this evening? No one here can love and understand me. Maxine Malone was in my body and you slept with her. Honey, I told her to leave. When she's Jan, she's very, very good. Get drunk, make a fool out of myself. I, I wouldn't do anything like this. But when she's bad, she's Maxie. Maxie. In the flesh, lover. Oh, what hard luck stories they all hand me. Where's my wife? I was possessed by Maxie Malone. Ah! Get thee behind me, Satan. I'm warning you, Maxie. I don't want to have to resort to force. Oh, well, one of us has to. Orion Pictures presents... So, make the bed. Don't touch me. Glenn Close. Light the light. And Glenn Close. And that was a her with a capital H. In Maxie. For those of you that have never heard of this one, which I imagine is most of you, this couple moves into this apartment or this house and they're like tearing off the wallpaper and underneath the wallpaper, they find this message scrawled in lipstick, which looks like it was just done like two seconds before they rolled the camera. It's supposed to be like, what, like 50 years old that it was there? Anyway. We're not here to talk about production design. Go on. <laughs> anyway, we're here to talk about Glenn Close. How was she? Anyway, they realized they're being fucking haunted by the spirit of, as Spro was just talking about, a failed actress of the silent age. And she takes over the body of Mandy Patinkin's wife, Jan, played by Glenn Close, and we're off to the races. So it's Glenn Close going back and forth between this very mild-mannered, insecure, whiny character named Jan, who lives in the 1980s, to this very oversexed, convivial actress named Max. She uses her body to differentiate between these characters, not just her voice. And it's a comedic performance, which I am very happy to put up there as an Oscar nomination because comedies just don't get enough. This is it? Like, we're just going to give her the nomination? I feel like I forced you with this because I'm no, like... No, not at all. I mean, I'll give you my honest take. This movie was <laughs> horrible. Feels like it was written by like a really horny guy. <laughs> The first time that, you know, Maxie jumps in Jan's body, she goes down on him in bed. And then Glenn Close, as Jan, gets very upset with him. He didn't know that it wasn't her. And he's like, what the fuck? I'm not cheating on you because it's it's you. I was like, yeah, this is a good conundrum to kind of present. And Maxie is an actress, so sometimes she would act as Jan. Ah, I liked it. 
It's free on YouTube. Go check it out. I enjoyed it, but I really enjoyed Glenn Close in it. She did a very good job, as did Mandy Patinkin. The acting is great for a script that is beneath both of those actors. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not the last movie. Like Witness, Kelly McGillis. Should we talk about her? I love Witness. What do you love about Witness? Because I rewatched it for this episode. So I watched it at a very young age. I loved it and I still love it. And I can still overlook how corny it is. (laughs) (laughs) And how overacted it is. But there's some really cool shit in that movie. Suffice to say, though, none of what is on the list in my mind is Kelly McGillis. Right. We don't have to talk about Kelly McGillis. She was just there, really. When was the last time you watched Desperately Seeking? Susan! Good going, stranger. And you can dance. been a while i watched it again last night for this episode and it did not age well oh my (laughs) god like i was never enamored with it back in the day i watched it a lot because my older sisters watched a lot they were both huge madonna fans but yeah it is not a good (laughs) movie and i'm glad i didn't go back to it okay so we're giving the meryl streep nomination to glenn close who i'm not a glenn close fan but i mean like that's pretty cool that we're giving it to a, a comedy role that was an unexpected result Yeah, but I think what's even more unexpected was... I consider this woman the greatest actress in the English language. The winner is Geraldine Page in A Trip to Bountiful. I've never heard of The Trip to Bountiful or Geraldine Page, who won Best Actress this year. I was like, what is going on in 1985 that this was the winner? We're trying to look at Sally Field for Murphy's Romance or Kelly McGillis for Witness or Meryl Streep. Like, the winner of this year is horrible. (laughs) All right, all right, all right. So for those of you that aren't following Spro's train of thought, just a real quick (laughs) recap. We just finished with the year 1985, or rather the Oscars of 86. Meryl Streep was nominated that year, but he's talking about a woman named Geraldine Page who won the year that Meryl Streep was nominated. Ms. Page was an American actress that most of you probably don't remember. I remember seeing her in Sweet Bird of Youth, which was yet another movie I sought out because it had Newman in it. I think probably the best chance I have of naming one of her movies that our audiences might remember is Disney's The Rescuers, in which she voiced Madame Medusa. Yeah, I still got nothing. Okay. In any case, she was in a 1985 movie called A Trip to Bountiful. Based on a play of the same name by the author Horton Foote, she plays a character named Carrie Watts, which is this like elderly woman, even though Geraldine Page was like 60 at the time. She looks really old for 60, man. Thank you all. I wanted to say while Murray is here, thank you for the Mirror Repertory Company, so much for both members of the company. Well, thank uh, Horton Foote for all this. I'm so glad. I'm so glad to see you. members of the Academy responded to Carrie Watts the way I did, evidently. That's because the way he wrote it. And I want to thank you for this for all of us in the company. John Hurd and Carlin and Richard Bradford and Rebecca. And uh, it was all through the beautiful eye of Fred Murphy. 
and the masterful direction and his film debut as a director, Peter Masterson. But mainly it's Horton's fault with all this. But thank you, Horton. Mother Watts lives with her son, an absolute dick of a daughter-in-law, where she spends time kind of staring out the window and doting on her loving son, Ludie, played by the late John Hurd, and then clashing with his wife, Jessie May. Her dream is to return to her childhood home of Bountiful, this like Texas town that's been lost to time. And the story tells of her finally sneaking away from her son and daughter-in-law to return to Bountiful. And Jesus, do you remember the last time we went streeping? I talked about that movie quartet and how it was absolutely the worst movie that I had to watch for this podcast. Well, I think this one is either tied or a very close second. And this woman, Geraldine Page, won Best Actress for this performance, and I find it unconscionable. Apart from the fact that it looks like a made-for-TV movie, the dialogue is insufferable. And then the acting that comes as a result of that dialogue is dreadful. You have a very young Rebecca de Mornay playing maybe the most pointless part in the history of scripts. Really have to strain to figure out why she's there. And honestly, considering all that's wrong here, Paige isn't terrible. She's very good at playing passive-aggressive and childish, but she doesn't deserve the Oscar. She's completely unsympathetic. There was not even... I couldn't find a reason to like her. And, and that doesn't have to be a deal-breaker. I mean, if the character is interesting, if you want to see them change or succeed, you can overlook unlikable. You can even relate to unlikable, but there's nothing interesting or relatable about this character. In the end, I couldn't tell if she was meant to be on the cusp of dementia or if she's just an old asshole who plays dumb to get the upper hand. I would like a uh, ticket to Bountiful, please. Where? To uh, Bountiful. I can sell you a ticket to Harrison or to Cotton, but there's no Bountiful. She has a serious heart condition. It might be real serious for her to be left alone. I, I don't think she has any money, and I'd like to find her. I am not going to spend the rest of my life running after your mother. I think we ought to just turn this whole thing over to the police. Jessie May wants a life of her own. Thelma wants her life to begin. Ludie wants a future. And Carrie wants to recapture the past. I said to my papa once after our third crop failure in a row, whoever named this place Bountiful. He said his papa did. In those days, it was a land of plenty. You just drop seeds in the ground and the crops would spring up. From Horton Foote, the Academy Award-winning author of Tender Mercies, comes an unforgettable story of decent people with special dreams. Yes, the Lord just with me today. <laughs> I wonder why the Lord's not with us every day. Sure would be nice if he was. Carlin Glenn, John Hurd, Rebecca De Mornay, and Geraldine Page. The trip to Bountiful. Well, I don't think budget should be a thing to consider and we should just look at the performance it didn't evolve like you like the dialogue was bad because the dialogue was theatrical dialogue being shot on screen it seemed like these three actors were in the original play or whatever and they're like let's just make it a movie but when it comes to Geraldine Page's character like she didn't evolve there was no arc she played the same aloofness in that apartment in the beginning that she did in Bountiful sitting in the dirt staring back at her house I didn't hate this watch like you did but it reminded me of another win for an older actor we went over last year, Art Carney over Al Pacino. I was having flashbacks of watching an old actor play an old person and wondering if this just resonated with old Oscar voters. And we typically, because we have so many films to watch, don't veer off course. But for this episode, man, we did. This nomination pool is really just kind of a mess. Geraldine Page was cute in this movie, and I'm fine with a nomination as a, you know, a slap on the back or, or a pat on the back, I guess I should say. But to award this? All right. Think good thoughts. <laughs> 
This was a career thank you. And the poor woman passed away like 14 months later. She was younger than my mom and dad, but she looked like 20 years their senior. All right, I've thrown enough shade at poor Ms. Page. <laughs> you want to know how I know how this podcast will continue on? Because we both love the sound of our own voices and we'll probably never have children. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No, because slights in this game remind me of other slights in this game. Do you know what giving Geraldine Page a Best Actress Award for reminded me of when it came to who didn't get the award for playing an old woman on the same razor's edge of dementia? No. The 73rd Academy oh. Awards when Ellen Burstein lost the Requiem for a Dream Oscar to Julia Roberts, Aaron Brockovich. And you know what I didn't know until I looked up who Burstein lost the award to that year? That Requiem was only nominated for one award. Oh. That award. The whole movie is so effective that I never want to watch it again. <laughs> and we've had this conversation. Yeah. But her performance um, is transcendent. Let's double back. Okay. 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 I feel like we got to keep reminding the audience. We know what we came here to do. All right. We took the nomination away from Meryl and we're giving it to Glenn Close for Maxie. But I think in a rare move, we want to aim for the crown. Did we uncover an injustice from 1985 that needs to be corrected right here and now? If you're thinking what I'm thinking of, I think so. Geraldine Page didn't deserve this Oscar. No disrespect to the dead. <laughs> I mean, we've disrespected so many dead on this show. <laughs> Maybe we can do a tally sometime. Any way, <laughs> who deserves that Best Actress Oscar of 1986? One penny of my money, not one thin dime. Did I ever ask you for anything? I don't Did I ever ask you for anything? I never asked you for nothing, not even your sorry-ass hand in marriage. Nothing. I never asked you for nothing. It should go to Whoopi Goldberg for her performance as Seeley in The Color Purple. The Color Purple. An American story for the whole world. It's about life, it's about love, it's about us. You will always remember, Mr. Shook. Old Mr. Nettie. Harple. Squeak. Sophia and Seeley. You will never forget the color purple. Were you on air last Streep episode saying, well, I guess I have to watch... I don't know why I'm making you a hillbilly. Uh, I guess I have to go watch the color purple now. <laughs> but <laughs> you said that, right? Am I making that up? Yeah. I mean, I can't remember. Probably. <laughs> this movie was on TBS when I was like 10, 12, 13. And I caught bits and pieces, but I'm like, nah, that's not a movie for me. But I got to tell you, dear listeners, if you have not seen this fucking movie, you really kind of need to. This movie was hard. And I was already talking to people about it during it and being like, it's tough. And I'm only like 30 minutes in and people would be like, the first 30 minutes is a tough part. The second 30 minutes is a tough part. This is a tough yeah, watch of a film. Yeah. I'm not a fan so much of Whoopi Goldberg. I still don't really understand why she won for Ghost. I think it's the sequence of her dressing up and going into the bank that won her the Oscar. She just fucking deserved it for this movie. Holy shit. I should have locked you up and just let you out to work. The day you plan for me is the one you're going to rot in. 
said introducing Whoopi Goldberg. I was like, no fucking way is this her first film. That's just a flourish that they put on there because she was going from comedy into more serious or dramatic roles, but it was her second movie, but nobody's ever heard of her first movie, which was called Citizen. And to make a jump from this movie Citizen to a Steven Spielberg movie when he is on the heels of one hell of a run, that's probably enough to justify an introducing credit. Anyway, Color Purple's based on Alice Walker's novel of the same name. Evidently, Walker herself chose Goldberg for the lead role after seeing her stand-up. Producer and composer Quincy Jones may have also had a hand in that, but I kind of like to think it was the author's idea. Anyway, it was perfect casting, spot on. For those of you that have never seen the movie, just really quickly, the story of this film is very difficult to encapsulate in just a blur, but I'll do my best to sum it up. Two sisters, entirely devoted to each other, are separated by a series of awful men, and then the story follows the older sister, Celie, as she grows strong enough to survive an abusive husband. And that is about as base a description as I can give, but please know that the movie is so much richer and nuanced, we just don't have time to give a giant summary of it. I want to talk about the movie, but I do need to focus. We got to focus here on Whoopi. We got to focus on Best Actress. Whoopi is terrific. She jumps out at the screen in this one. And it's made all the more impressive by the fact that this was her first starring role. She gets to be timid, intelligent, flattered, and frightened, and she slides in and out and all around of these moments like a seasoned fucking veteran. Her moments with Sugar are my favorites. The way that she covers her smile after the kiss. Wonderful. So adorable. And then, of course, the sequence when she finally stands up to Albert. The fucking hatred in her eyes for this man. Physically, emotionally abusive piece of shit played scary authentically by Danny Glover. She suddenly like steals the whole movie for me when she is talking with Harpo and Harpo is like, I just, I don't know what to do and da 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 da. And Spielberg keeps the camera on Whoopi and she looks timid and her like shoulders are hunched forward and she just really softly just goes, beat her. It's this like childish suggestion that just has so much maliciousness behind it. To go from that little timid suggestion to her holding a knife. How many times does she hold a knife to Danny Glover's throat in this? Like three, four times? Is there a razor to his throat? Like she is always on the cusp of doing it. And every single time you're like, this is it. This is the time that she's going to do it. You always believe that she has it in her. And then finally, when it comes out, you're like, this is what we have been waiting for the entire time. This is a great performance. I can't believe I've never seen this movie. I really couldn't. <laughs> like it was... <laughs> And if I may reiterate one final thing, The Color Purple was up for 11 Academy Awards and won nothing. When it is empirically superior to Out of Africa and every other movie we've discussed, which range from awful to terrible to tolerable to average, 
Color Purple was deserving of every Oscar that Out of Africa won, but at absolute bare minimum, Whoopi should have handily defeated Streep and Paige for Best Actress. I don't even think it's close. It might interest our listeners to know that five years later, Whoopi would win an Oscar, Best Supporting Actress for Ghost. And then, in 2002, she achieved the coveted EGOT. For those of you that don't know what EGOT is, that is a really shitty acronym that stands for Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. Do you know that there's a PGOT? What does that entail? That's people that have won a Pulitzer or a Peabody, mm. an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. That's an <laughs> illustrious list. So in the midst of going streeping, mm-hmm. we discovered that Geraldine Page, who won the Oscar, didn't deserve it. Whoopi Goldberg deserved it in 1986 for her performance in The Color Purple. I'm about to sing is called Miss Seeley's Blues. Because <laughs> she scratched it out my head when I was ailing. This is it for season three, going streepin'. And in two episodes, we revoked two nominations for Miss Street. She's gone from 21 to 19. Want to keep going next season? Are you serious? Of course we're going to keep going next season. (laughs) We're going to see this thing out. Absolutely. But this isn't the end of the season. We'll be back in two weeks. Until next time, I'm Lee. I'm Spro. And we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are red. Sister, you've been on my Two of a kind soul, sister I'm keeping my eyes on you I bet you think I don't know nothing But singing the blues Oh, sister Have I got news for you? I'm something I hope you think that you're something too. You're good at thinking of like different series for the show, Spro, like little mini series. Thanks, buddy. Um, but I really, I, I love the name, the, the Streep effect, so much more than last season's Poly Academy. Oh, yeah. Where does going streeping rank? Oh, I like that one as well. I think that one's hilarious. A pun on going streaking, right? Naked's always fun. Floppy wieners. You just didn't like Poly Academy because you didn't know how to say it. And you still yeah. don't know how to spell it because you still spell it with a Y when obviously it would be P-O-L-I because it's politics. Yeah, but when, but, when pe- but when people, you're, you're making it poly, like the P-O-L, you're doing it like the way people refer to pol- political science classes, right? Right, which is P-O-L-I, isn't that? I'm typing it into Google right now. Poly Sci. <laughs> because the way you spell poly here with P-O-L-Y would be multiple academies. Hmm. Yeah, there you it go. Is, 4.0 GPA, Masters is, in English Literature. It is P-O-L-I. What an <laughs> ugly thing. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> Fine. I stand corrected. I stand there corrected. There you go. Whatever. They're not all winners. Yeah, but I still love you. Oh, thanks, Lee. Moderately fond of you as well. I'll take it. So we're about done with season three, huh? Yeah, only one more episode to go, man. All right. When is it and what is it? Uh, well, it will be available to stream on December 5th. And it's it's actually a totally new concept for us. I'm really excited. Mm-hmm. We're going to go around the world in 12 movies to decide what was actually the best film on Earth for 2021. 
all these international films going against America's Coda. Yeesh. <laughs> Sounds like I have a lot of movies to watch. Okay, while mm-hmm. I do that, all you wonderful people, please help us out. Subscribe, rate, review the show through Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And you know, could really use some more of those positive reviews. Got a lot already. If you could add another one, we'd love you forever. Absolutely. And if you're on Instagram, follow at Take on the Academy for updates and plenty of cinema posts. And if you still like emailing, we love to read emails. You can send those to takeontheacademy at gmail.com. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we hope you join us again on December 5th for the best movie in the world, 2021.